If you would, go ahead and take out your Bibles with me. Let's open them up to the book of Obadiah. The book of Obadiah is in the Old Testament, uh, towards the end of the Old Testament, in the section called the Minor Prophets. Uh, if you get to the book of Jonah, uh, you've just passed it, uh, which is easy to do, because in most Bibles, Obadiah is only one page. Uh, if you want to use one of the Bibles we have provided for you, uh, you'll find the book of Obadiah on page 772 uh, in those Bibles. This is the second of four messages on uh, this small yet very important Old Testament book. And what I want us to do is read verses 1 through 9. So if you would look with me at what the Lord God uh, spoke through the prophet Obadiah, verses 1 through 9. And this is the word of God. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. and You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. I want to begin this morning with this question. It may seem like a strange question at first, but it is an important question. Here it is. Are you an Edomite? Are you an Edomite? I'm not asking whether or not you're a descendant of Esau. I'm not asking whether you are a part of the ancient Edomite nation. No, as we saw last Sunday evening, the Edomites in this book of Obadiah are a picture of all who are living in rebellion against God. In the book of Obadiah, Israel is a picture of those who are God's people. Israel is a picture of those who know God and have a covenant relationship with God. But Edomites are those who do not, those who have rejected God, those who live opposed to God, 
those who live their own way with no regard for God. The book of Obadiah was given to the nation of Israel. But the book of Obadiah speaks directly to the people of Edom. And so that's the way I've fashioned the sermon this morning. I'm going to preach the same way this book is written. I am bringing this sermon to a church, to a group of God's people. But like Obadiah, I am going to speak directly this morning to those who may be among us, who may not be believers, who may not know this God, who may not be a part of the true Israel. Could it be that there are Edomites in this room? Could it be that your heart still belongs to you and and not to Christ? That that you are bowing down to a thousand other gods of this world while refusing to give the allegiance you owe to Christ as supreme over all? Last week we saw the outline of the book of Obadiah. The first nine verses declare God's verdict against Edom. Verses 10 through 14 declare Edom's violation. And verses 15 through 21 describe Israel's victory. And so this morning we're going to look at those first nine verses. And we're going to look at God's verdict against the nation of Edom. But as we do this, don't miss the bigger picture. The judgment of God being described in this passage was not only directed against Edom, but rather is a shadow or a picture of the same judgment of God that is hanging over everyone in this room and everyone in this world who does not truly know God through the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, enemies of God are not just Islamic terrorist, or abortionists, or passionate atheists. We all live in God's world, under God's laws of morality, and we all have made ourselves enemies of God by rebelling against the Most High. If you live in God's world, without regard for Him, refusing to honor Him, refusing to heed the commands He has given you, refusing to give Him the worship He is due, then you have made yourself a criminal in God's world. You are an enemy of God's state. You are like a rebellious child who refuses to listen to or obey the Father who gave you life. And your disobedience not only affects you, but the rest of the human race. Your disobedience and disrespect for God is a slap in the face of the Father who made you and loves you. God has not made you His enemy. You have made God yours. And that is who we all are, apart from Christ. Maybe you're thinking, I'm a pretty decent guy or gal. I have no hard feelings towards God. I'm just living my life. 
But friends, that's exactly it. It's not your life. Life is a precious gift, and it comes to you with conditions. This life God has given you, it can be used for good, or it can be used for wickedness. And God knows better than we do what it means to live a life for good and not for evil. To say that you're just living your own life is wrong on two fronts. One, it forgets that your life is not your own, that you belong to the one who made you. And second, it assumes that you know what is best for you. Here's the philosophy of the world. You can know what is best for you. This is is you taking God's place. This is you removing God from from His throne. I know what is best for me. This is why James says that friendship with the world is enmity against God. If you think the way the world thinks, that you can just live your life the way you want to live it, deciding for yourself each day what is best, and if you refuse to acknowledge God's rightful role in your life, then you are attempting to set yourself in His place. You see, God is intrinsically worthy of all your faith and obedience. He is worthy of your faith. He is due your obedience. And your failure to render that to Him makes you truly and utterly guilty in God's sight. All of us, apart from Christ, are guilty, rebellious sinners headed towards hell. By nature, we are enemies of God. And in this passage, we have not only God's verdict against Edom, but God's verdict against humanity. And against any of us in this room who are still outside of Christ, we too stand condemned. And our day of judgment is coming. This passage is not a pleasant one. The day of judgment that is coming will not be a pleasant one for those who are outside of Christ. Be warned this morning. You will not be able to stand before, the last, before God on the last day and say, God, I was never told. I was never told of what was to come. Friends, we need to pay attention this morning and we need to tremble at what we are about to see. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If we do not fear God, if there is not a healthy fear of God in our souls, if we do not know what it is to tremble and quake at the Word of God, we are fools. We are not living in true wisdom. So listen carefully. What I want to do is unpack these, two, these nine verses under these two headings. The certainty of judgment and the extent of judgment. The certainty of judgment and the extent of judgment. So first look with me at the certainty of judgment. Obadiah's message to the nation of Edom was that they could not escape what God had decreed concerning them. 
The language of certainty is all over these verses. We see it in verse 2. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. Or verse 4. Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Or verse 9. And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. There's no maybes here. There's no, it is possible that this may occur. It is wills and shalls. This shall be. And interestingly, this is how the rest of the Bible speaks about God's coming judgment for all humanity. So, for example, listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 25. He says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. Not Jesus might come sit on His glorious throne. Not it is possible that Jesus may come sit on His glorious throne. He will come sit on His glorious throne. And when He comes, He will sit on His throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations. And He will separate people, one from another, as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. You understand that Jesus is talking about our future there. That's a passage that we're all in. Jesus is declaring to us an event that is decreed for our future. You can count on this. This day is coming. And Jesus says He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on the left... And the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And he goes on to say that he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. These things have been spoken by the one who is all-powerful, the one whose plans can never be thwarted. You and I can make declarations about the future, but we know that the future can change, that what we say we're going to do tomorrow might not happen tomorrow. I might say that I will see you on Wednesday, but it may be that something happens to me between now and Wednesday, and I'm not able to see you on Wednesday. It's not like this with the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus declares that something will happen, it will happen. Because no one or nothing is stronger than Christ. No one or nothing can thwart what He has decreed. Could it be that there are some here like the Edomites who are deceiving themselves? That is, you in your pride have found some way to convince yourself that this day is not coming. That this day is not in your future. Or that you will fare well on that day despite your lack of repentance, despite your lack of true faith in Christ. Look at how Edom was doing this. Look at verses 3 and 4 and Edom's pride in these verses. Look at why Edom thought they were safe. Verses 3 and 4. The pride of your heart has deceived you You who live in the clefts of the rock, 
in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. You see, the people of Edom believed that they were safe because of the terrain of their country. See, the kingdom of Edom was south of the Dead Sea in a very rugged and mountainous region of the world. The capital of Edom was Selah, which literally means rock, and is the word translated rock in verse 3, when it says, you who live in the clefts of the rock. That's literally the word Selah, the capital of Edom. Um, Today, that place still bears the name rock, Petra. We know it as Petra in the nation of Jordan. Um, If you've ever seen the movie Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, uh, the last scenes of that movie were filmed in what was the capital of Edom, the place mentioned there in that verse. Uh, If you remember from that movie, this is a place with very high, steep cliffs separated by very narrow passageways. In fact, to get into Edom's capital city, you had to travel a narrow, one-mile-long path with steep cliffs on each side, so narrow that only a two people or so could walk at the same time beside each other. The Edomites had carved structures and works of art into the rocky cliffs. They had built their homes into the side of these steep cliffs. And so from a human perspective, the Edomite kingdom seemed almost impervious to attack. The Edomites took pride in this. They had a a cocky assurance. They were safe. No nation could get to them. They said in their heart, who will bring us down to the ground? But Edom, of course, is no match for the omnipotent, sovereign God of the universe And so God says, even if you were to build your home in the stars, I would bring you down. You see, their confidence was misplaced. And we see something very similar to this in verse 7. Everybody look at verse 7. Obadiah, having seen this vision of what was going to happen, says prophetically to Edom, verse 7, All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. You see, not only was Edom confident in the terrain of their kingdom, but they were confident in their relationship with other nations. And yet their friends proved to be their enemies. Those who appeared to be at peace with Edom, in fact, were deceiving them and ultimately would defeat them. These were other nations that had eaten Edom's bread, meaning that the Edomites had had treated them well, had received them as welcomed guests into their kingdom, and yet these same peoples were setting a trap for Edom, and Edom was blind to it. And so the confidence of Edom was in their terrain and in their allies, but these could do nothing to change the immutable decree of God. Are there any here making the same mistake. You who are outside of Christ, do you somehow suppose that you will escape the judgment of God? What false confidences do you have? Surely God will not condemn me. 
How can you say that when the Bible declares it again and again? You can choose not to believe the Bible. You can treat the Bible as a book of lies. But if you have any measure of true belief in the Bible as the Word of God, you cannot deny what God has made so clear. Again and again, God has made it known to you in the pages of the Bible. All those outside of Christ will be condemned. You know John 3.16. Do you remember what comes next? For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. For whoever does not believe, I'm sorry, whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. In other words, if you do not have true God-given faith, pulsing in your soul this moment, you already stand condemned before God. Every breath you take, you take as a person who has already been convicted before the judge. The verdict has already been handed down. The death sentence of hell has already been declared. All that awaits is the day when you will enter into your punishment. Dear lost man, woman, child, is this you? Are you willing to acknowledge that this is you? That you are a condemned sinner and that if something doesn't change, hell is in your future. You can deny it if you choose, but don't pretend like God hasn't said it. And if God has said it, should you not believe it? Maybe you say, look at all that I have accomplished. All the good that I have done in my life. Well, Friends, hear the wise words of Thomas Brooks. A man's most glorious actions will be... Sorry, read it again. A man's most glorious actions will at last be found to be but glorious sins if he hath made himself and not the glory of God the end of those actions. Or as Romans 14.23 puts it, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Which means you, your greatest good works, your greatest accomplishments in this life, if they were not connected to faith in Christ, they are but glorious sins. And this is why God can say through Isaiah that those things which appear to be your best, your most righteous deeds, appear before God as a filthy cloth in His sight. There is no works that you have ever done that can take away the fact that you as a sinner stand condemned before God. Oh, but I will repent later. I don't plan to keep living the way I'm living forever. I, I will eventually repent. I, I will eventually turn to Christ. Really? How can you be so sure? How do you know that you won't die in the next five minutes? What kind of presumption is that to even assume you'll be alive in the future to repent and believe? But moreover, both experience and the Bible make clear 
that the longer a person lives in rebellion against God, the harder that person's heart comes towards God. Sin has a hardening effect on people's lives. And it will make you stubborn in your sin if you continue to live in it. Also consider this. If you say that you are going to wait to repent, that you're going to wait to turn to Christ, then you must clearly not understand the weight of these things. Because if you could see your sin as God sees it, if you could see the effects of your sin and the effect that it is having on others the way God sees it, you would be running to Christ in repentance this moment. If you could see these things as you need to, you would be pleading with Christ to purify you and to save you from your sins. If you're able to walk out of this room this morning saying, I will repent later, I will turn to Christ later, you clearly do not yet see these things. And what guarantee is there that you will ever see these things? Do not presume on tomorrow. My lost friends, this is a hard word, but it comes to you in love. You must know the truth about yourself. Before you can get to the Gospel, you must learn the hard truth that the Edomites had to learn. Your condemnation is certain. Hell is in your future. Lost friends, settle this in your mind. You are going to hell. That is your future. Be sure of it. God does not lie. You say, Justin, there is salvation in Jesus Christ. Yes, there is, but that has nothing to do with you. Not if you're not willing to submit yourself to Him. If you're not willing to give up authority over your life, to give yourself to His ways and His Word, then that way of salvation offers nothing for you. Hell will be your everlasting home. It's the certainty of judgment. Second, notice the extent of God's judgment. This is illustrated in verses 5 and 6. Look with me at verses 5 and 6. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. And so Obadiah is, is contemplating this vision that God has given to him. And you can see how heart-wrenching it is because right there in the middle of verse 5, he just cries out, How you have been destroyed! The extent of God's judgment on Edom is going to be so great that it staggers Obadiah. There is wonder in the heart of Obadiah as in this vision he sees the utter destruction that is coming to this kingdom. And he illustrates the extent of this judgment in these two illustrations. The first is that of, of thieves. The thief comes into your house the thief will usually take with him valuable things, perhaps as much as he can get away with. But a thief won't take everything. Suppose you get home from church this morning 
And God forbid, as you drive up to your house, you notice that the door has been kicked in and someone has been in your house. Now you would expect, as you begin to walk in, that there's probably been some valuable items taken from your home. But you would not expect to walk into your house and find only empty walls with every piece of furniture, every object, even the very carpets removed from your house. But Obadiah is saying that this is how complete the destruction of Edom is going to be. The second illustration he uses is that of somebody gathering grapes. They come to the vine and remove as many of the grapes as they can, but they cannot get them all. Surely there will be some grapes still left on the vine and some that have fallen to the ground. But Obadiah says it won't be like that with God's coming judgment. It will be utterly complete. Edom prided itself in its riches. As we mentioned last Sunday night, this was a wealthy nation, a nation in which the famous King's Highway, this this great road of trade that connected all of these Middle Eastern nations all the way down to the African nation of Egypt, this road passed through them, and there was a lot of trade there, and Edom had become a very wealthy nation, and they, they prided themselves in this. Yet, as one commentator puts it, these verses show that the warehouses of this trading center, crammed with valuable goods, will all be broken open, and the safes of its wealthy merchants are to be left empty. This wealthy kingdom will be left penniless. But even this is not all. For not only was every valuable going to be removed from the kingdom of Edom, but Edom's fighting forces, Edom's brave young men, were going to be utterly annihilated. The supposed allies, the ones who had come in and broken bread with the Edomites, they would become enemies. And men would be called up out of Edom to sacrifice themselves, to go and to fight, and they would all be destroyed. Look at verse 9. Verse 9. And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Teman was one of the major cities of Edom, and it was probably a city from which many of the mightiest warriors of Edom came. Mount Esau was a nickname for the entire kingdom of Edom. So when the mighty men of Teman become dismayed, when the mightiest men of the army begin to turn and flee, it spells very bad news for the nation. And the last words of verse 9 are catastrophic that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Not one of your fighting men, Edom, is going to return home alive. Friends, this is how the rest of the Bible speaks about the extent of God's judgment coming on sinful humanity. God's judgment is not only certain, but it will be terrible and it will be exhaustive. Remember, as terrible as this judgment is, that Obadiah is describing, this judgment was just a shadow of the one to come. The reality is something greater than the shadow itself. The judgment of Edom, as dreadful as it was, pales in comparison to the ultimate judgment day that still lies in the future of the history of this world. 
How extensive will God's judgment be on the last day? Well, for one thing, it will be forever. At least the massacre of Edom was a temporal thing. The massacre of Edom, while it was taking place, was excruciating for everyone involved, but at least it came to an end. Not so for God's judgment of the wicked in hell. It lasts forever. There are no moments for relief, no breaks for the condemned to catch their breath or to have a second's peace. It's interesting how many people in our day kick against this. How many even supposed Bible-believing evangelical Christians deny the eternality of hell. They don't want to acknowledge that God's judgment when it comes will be forever. But listen to the Scriptures on this issue. This, it's clear in so many passages. Matthew 3.12 says that Christ will separate people as a farmer separates wheat from chaff. And we're told that the chaff will be burned with an unquenchable fire. That is, a fire that doesn't go out. Matthew 18.18 If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. The eternal fire. Matthew 25.46 Speaking of the wicked says, These will go away into eternal punishment and the righteous into eternal life. Hell will last as long as heaven lasts. Just forever. 2 Thessalonians 1.9, speaking again of God's enemies, says they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Jude 12 and 13, speaking of false teachers cast into hell, says that the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved for them forever. Revelation 14.11 actually gives us a glimpse of the suffering that is in hell. And we read that the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. You may think this is cruel, that this is untrue or unfair, but let's be clear, the Bible teaches this. Deny the Bible if you must. But if you say, I believe the Bible, you must acknowledge the Bible teaches that hell is a place of eternal torment. That God's judgment of His enemies is, to be, is declared to be so complete that in the end, sin against an eternal God warrants an eternal punishment. You may think your sins are not worth this kind of punishment. You may think your sins are too small to receive this kind of judgment. But God says otherwise. And who really knows? Who is the Supreme Court in this matter? Friends, we need to praise God because there is a way of salvation that has been offered in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we must accept it on God's conditions. 
we must accept the offer of the gospel on God's conditions. Christ came to earth. He lived the perfect life we have failed to live. And then as an expression of God's compassion and mercy on us hopeless sinners, Christ went to the cross in the place of sinners and bore the wrath that they deserved so that everyone who is willing to turn from their sins, to humble themselves before Christ, to submit themselves to Christ, these will have their sins forgiven. You can be reconciled to God, have peace with God, and the promise of heaven through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You don't have to understand how all this works. You don't have to yet understand all the theology and all of what took place on the cross to make this possible. What you must understand is that Christ has done everything necessary so that you can go from being God's enemy to being God's child. And you must be willing to do what God calls you to do to have this salvation. What does He call you to do? In your heart, kneel before King Jesus. He loves you. He loves you. Do not fight Him another day. Give your life to Him. Give your allegiance to Him. Trust in what He has done and not your own works. Trust in what He has done alone for your salvation. And say that from this day forward, by God's help, I'm going to look to Christ through His Word, through the church, through, the, through prayer. And I'm going to say, Jesus, You know me better than I know me. You know what is right. You were wiser than me. I am still a a humble child trying to figure this life out. You teach me how to live. And say that you will follow Christ. This is what it means to be a Christian. It means to be a follower, a true follower of Christ. You will find that God is a God to be feared. But God is also a God to be loved and a God to be rejoiced in. Our God is a big God and though He is a God of righteous wrath and we must never compromise on that, He is also a God of great mercy to all who will turn to Him. And so I call on all of us in our hearts to turn to Him anew. And if you've never done this, You go to Him and plead with Him to forgive you of your sins, and He will. Because everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then you begin a new life through baptism and church membership of walking with Christ. And in this way, you can have the assurance that the coming judgment will not be a day of condemnation for you. It will be a day of sweet salvation. Church, Don't go home and forget about these things. Don't let us leave this room in five minutes and it's all said and done and that was nice. And Think about these things. Because the truth is, everything you see is one day going to be gone. And everything we've been talking about is coming. This really, really matters. Let's pray.